so this today is our last Sunday in Advent, which for me feels like I'm already pre-morning the end of Advent. It's my favorite season of the whole year, and so I, I'm a little heart-heavy, but, um, but I'm excited. We're going to take this week to look at the last character of the Nativity. What we've done for the last four weeks is to take um, specific characters in the story of the birth of Jesus and, and look at them and their stories, and um, we've spent the last few weeks looking at the boys, and so today we're transitioning. We're looking at the girl, like the girl. Today we're going to look at Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, and so... Uh, that's a good way. If I have to mourn the end of Advent, we can mourn it um, with Mary. So I think sometimes uh, when it comes to Mary, uh, as the Protestant, listen, I'm not going to blame Kristen for messing up my microphone, but I'm going to blame Kristen for messing up my microphone. Um, okay. I, I think as the Protestant church that sometimes we get really nervous uh, when anybody uh, talks about Mary or, or looks like they might put Mary on some sort of pedestal or talk about her like she's special and different than other people. And uh, here's the thing. Uh, she is. She, she is special. She has a different job than anyone else in all of time has ever uh, had. Calling um, Mary special does not in any way devalue the special of anyone else. And so um, all the Catholics in the room are like, hallelujah, thank you. And everyone else is like, are you sure? Can we? So let's just take a collective deep breath. It's okay um, that we talk about Mary, that, that we uh, call her special. Elizabeth, in the text today uh, that Whit read to us, Elizabeth says, uh, God has blessed you with this job that no one else will do. That's my translation of it. Uh, she says, you are honored among women. Uh, the angel comes to Mary and says, you have been set apart. And so it's okay for us to treat Mary as if she has uh, been set apart for her specific job and her specific role. Uh, the Greek word for this is uh, theotokos, and it means mother of God or God-bearer. I love that. Mary, the God-bearer, the job that was specific to her to bear uh, God for the world. It's a title reserved just uh, for her. And so today as we talk about her and her part in the story of the birth of Jesus uh, from our scripture lesson, um, I'm going to come at things a little bit different. We're going to do a little bit of an experiment um, this morning. Um, if I was someone who was good at titling messages, I am not. Any title you see on podcasts or things are because uh, Johnny or Katie has helped me retitle whatever, you know, I'm like, uh, this Sunday will be Mark 1, period. And then they'll give a creative title. But if I were into creative titles, I would call this sermon uh, Three Observations on Mary. Uh, I couldn't pick one. <laughs> So it's going to be three, three, three little sermons. I assure you that they are brief, um, according to me. So, you know, uh, we'll do three. So we're going to look at three different lessons that we can learn from the story of Mary. Uh, my hope is that one of them will connect with you. Maybe all three will connect with you. So if you really connect with the first one, you don't have to listen to the end. Just kidding. Um, so here we go. Glimpse number one, uh, what we can learn from Mary about spiritual community. So when we uh, picked up the story, so when Wit started in Luke chapter 1, uh, Mary has gone to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Um, some people, when they retell the story, theologians, they'll say Mary's living in exile with her cousin. Um, I think that could be true, but, but I feel like when I read it, I, I, it feels like a visit. It, it doesn't feel so much as she's running away from something as it feels that she's running toward something. And she's running toward Elizabeth, toward another woman with a miracle baby in her belly. And so when she gets there, Elizabeth, she greets her. And the baby in Elizabeth's womb, which is John the Baptist, uh, did you catch that part? The baby leaps for joy in her 
womb uh, and, and, and greets Mary. And Henry Nouwen, when he talks about this moment, he says, this is one of the most beautiful moments in all of the scriptures, this interaction between Mary and Elizabeth. Because what we have in this moment um, are two women waiting together. Two women who have the promise of the miraculous, the promise of uh, a coming rescue, and they are waiting together, waiting with one another for the promises that are on their way. And so what they have done in this moment is they have created space to wait together and affirmed in each other uh, that the thing they are waiting on is worth waiting on. They've created the space to say, this thing that we think may be coming, it is worth the wait, and we'll do it together. It's worth waiting on together. Nowen calls this passage beautiful because he says it's such a clear picture of what community in Christ is supposed to be. What community among believers is supposed to look like. Here's how he says it. Um, Henry Nowen says, here we see a model for Christian community. It is a community of support a community of celebration and affirmation in which we can lift up what has already begun in us. The visit of Elizabeth and Mary is one of the Bible's most beautiful expressions of what it means to form community, to be together, gathered around a promise, affirming what is happening among us. I think that's such a good way of describing uh, what community is supposed to look like and what it's supposed to feel like. It is uh, supposed to look like being together around a promise, affirming the movement and happenings of the Spirit of God in one another. Uh, Chad already talked about this for a while, but, but we really are so excited about launching small groups. And you have been so patient uh, with us to wait on them. Um, but but that's what, we're just so excited because we feel like that um, what Chad did is, is he spent the whole fall researching, like, what, what's working in small groups and, and watching our, our, our room and our place and say, what would work here, just like he said. And, um, and, and what, we've, what we've learned is that, that small groups work their best when, when they are gathering of friends around the promise of Jesus, affirming what the Spirit is doing in other people's lives. Sometimes we think small groups have to be these like deep, trudging, emotional battles when really this, this really uh, simple thing is how small groups tend to flourish, this simple concept. It's, it's why we meet together, how we form spiritual community, is that uh, uh, what we have been waiting for and groaning for as a people is, is that we want to uh, be together around a promise, affirming the movement and the happenings of the Spirit of God in the lives of other people. Um, the truth is, small groups are not the only way that we experience this in the world. That's just what we're excited about right this second. Um, there are loads of ways. This is, this is a friendship in the Spirit of God. Being friends with someone in the Spirit of God means that you are together around a promise, affirming what the Spirit is doing in each other's lives. This is family within the kingdom of God. This is a kingdom kind of relationship that we see with Mary and Elizabeth waiting together around a promise, affirming the move of God and the power of the presence of the Spirit in each other's lives. That was number one. Observation number two. Uh, what we can learn about faithfulness from the story of Mary. So, Right before the passage we read today, if you were to read back in Luke chapter 1, uh, Gabriel, an angel, comes to visit Mary, uh, who is most likely a teenage girl, engaged to be married to a teenage boy. We talked about this a few weeks ago with Joseph. And Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, great news. You will have a son and you will name him Jesus and he will be the great rescue of the world. And Mary responds and says, what? What? 
in the world. And then Gabriel, she says, what? I'm a virgin. That's not possible. I can't be pregnant. And then Gabriel gives her um, this really clear explanation. This is what he says will happen in verse 35 of Luke 1. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and God will overshadow you. And then you will have a son and, the, and he will be the son of God. What? It is the worst description in the Bible, I think. How can this happen? I'm a virgin. God will overshadow you. I don't even know what that means. I looked it up a bunch this week. I don't understand. It is a, it's a, it's a terrible explanation. Um, this is a side note. This doesn't count as one of my observations. This one's just for free. Um, but we talked about this a few weeks ago. If the idea of a virgin birth is, is absurd to you, if it sounds like it is absolutely bananas and impossible, uh, then you are in good company in the scriptures. You're in very good company. Everyone in the Bible that finds out uh, about this thing thinks it's nuts. They all think it's impossible, and they all think it's absurd. You can maybe argue that Elizabeth doesn't. She seems excited. Everybody else, they, they think it is absolutely absurd. The general feeling toward miraculous pregnancies in Luke chapter 1 is, what? That's not a thing. And so it's okay if it feels impossible to you. And it is okay if it feels absurd to you. In fact, I would argue that is exactly how it's supposed to feel. That is exactly what it's supposed to feel like. This, it's, a, it's, a, it's the way you're supposed to read it and the way you're supposed to experience it. If you experience a virgin birth is impossible, that means you have a brain that works. Right? There's a line in a W.H. Autumn poem that I love that says, Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Nothing that can save us is possible. It's all absurd. We who must die demand a miracle. Our rescue is only found in something that seems absurd and something that seems impossible. Our rescue is only found in the miraculous, the stories of wonder that can stretch our minds and our hearts. And so if it's, it's okay if it feels beyond what you're able to believe. Uh, to steal from Ashley Matthews again, the same God who formed your brain reserves the right to surprise it. That's for free. So back to Mary. The angel, he, he comes and he kind of tells her uh, what will happen, but honestly it makes no sense. But then Mary responds to this, this description with more love and more faith than honestly I am able to imagine. Mary's response to Gabriel is, I am the servant of the Lord, may it happen as you say. And so uh, by the time we get to our text today uh, that Whit read, it's the song of Mary who believed that God would do what he said he would do. Elizabeth says, you are set apart. What, what marks you as set apart is that you believed that God would do what he said he would do. And so this song, the last few verses of what we read, it's called the Magnificat. And uh, N.T. Wright calls it the gospel before the gospel. It's the story of the rescue uh, before he even breathes. It's the song of Mary who believed, the song of Mary who is faithful to what God asks of her. And I just felt this week that it's worth spending a few minutes on the faithfulness of Mary here. For, for Mary, it's her great love that leads her to be faithful to the one who made her. And God uses uh, that faithfulness to bear his son who would make a way for the rescue of the whole world for all of time. And so the reality is that our lives today in this room have been impacted by the leading um, of faithfulness of Mary, the God-bearer. Our lives have been marked by her 
faithfulness. And I was struck by that idea that 2,000 years later, we bear the fruit of Mary's faithfulness. But not just Mary. There are loads of characters in the scripture whose, whose faithfulness we reap the benefits of, we reap the fruit of. And it's not just the story. Uh, the Bible, it's full of stories of, of great acts of, of great faithfulness. This is one story of many stories. It's a big one, but it's one story of many stories. And, and so that thought kept kind of going further in my mind. Because the truth is our lives are the fruit of the faithfulness of so many people. So many people. You are here sitting in this room because all throughout your life there have been faith people who have faced hard things, impossible things, and trusted a God that they could not see. No matter what you believe about God or uh, no matter what story you are living out or story you have lived out, you are here because you have been touched in more ways than we'll likely ever know by the faithfulness of the people of God. And it feels very Christmassy, I think, very Advent, uh, to spend some time in that idea, in the deep gratitude of the faithfulness uh, of the fruit that we bear because of other people. And it also feels like good news. It feels like good news. Mary was facing something hard, something impossibly hard. And, and yet she sings this song of the God who will take the impossible thing and he will transform it into the good thing. It's a song of the God who has the power to take the pain and the hard things and transform them into the redeemed things and the resurrection things that will uh, bear fruit for others. It's good news because I think it means that our faithfulness bears fruit uh, in the hard things. That no matter what story you're living out in your life today, your faithfulness bears fruit outside of just you. I feel like I constantly need the reminder that there's a wider story being told than whatever is sitting right in front of my face. That might feel impossible. And that others will bear the fruit of that. I was thinking as I was writing, and I was like thinking of faces in this room who their faithfulness bears fruit in my life. And I was getting choked up writing it, so I decided not to say it, but I kind of want to. Like my parents were faithful, and so I bear their fruit. My young life leader sits here every week. Sarah was faithful. I bear the fruit of her faithfulness. We are not alone in this room. We are not alone. We bear the faithfulness of so many that have gone before us. Final observation. Number three, what we can learn about the song. Uh, as I said, N.T. Wright calls the Song of Mary, verses 46 through 55, that's the Magnificat, and he calls it the gospel before the gospel. He says that when we read this song, when we read those verses, 46 to 55, when we read them, we should read them uh, with the kind of excitement that you would feel if you realized that your entire life was about to change. Like, if you realized that your nation had been set free, if you realized that someone you loved had been miraculously healed with no explanation, if you uh, found out you were pregnant after years of trying or months of trying with no success, or you got the job that you've dreamed of as long as you can imagine, or whatever you've dreamed of for as long as you can imagine, uh, that's how we're supposed to read it. We're supposed to read this story with that level of excitement. Maybe the level of excitement of the dubstep Jesus that we just saw the kids sing. They showed us well. That level of excitement, that's what uh, we're talking about. We're supposed to sing it, we're supposed to dance it, we're supposed to clap it, we're supposed to stomp it. It is a wild song of a wild and life-changing story. It is meant to be shouted in the streets as much as it is meant to be whispered in the prayers of church. 
It's a song that comes weeks before uh, a baby is born in a manger. It's the song, the gospel before the gospel. It's the song that, that comes 33 years before that baby will go to the cross and get up out of the grave and make the whole song become true. It is a song full of all of the best stuff, peace and hope and joy and love. It's a song that is supposed to be read and feel like a party. And for followers of Jesus, it's supposed to be the song of our souls. It's a song of revolution, and it's a song of rescue. It is the song of Jesus, the gospel before the gospel took his first breath. That is Mary's song. And when N.T. Wright writes about that part, he makes this really interesting thing at this point, and I think it's worth noting. Mary, uh, she sings this song, this perfect and beautiful song of celebration, and she means all of the words. By all accounts, we believe that she sung the song and we watched her life unfold and we see that she meant these words. And what will happen weeks later is she births a baby on, the, on a cold floor of a barn in the company of only Joseph, a man she may have known barely at all and maybe had never been alone with until this moment. And in the pain of labor, I wonder if she had to sing the words over and over again, remembering that just a few weeks ago they felt like a party. And today, I don't know if you've had a baby, feels a little less like a party till it feels like a party. I'll stop there. Then, so I wonder if she had to sing the song again to remember how it felt. And then 12 years after this, Mary, uh, she loses Jesus. Do you know that story? Jesus goes to the temple as a 12-year-old, and he gets lost for three days. I don't know if you've ever lost a kid for three days. She loses him for three days. When she finally finds him, uh, she comes to him, and she scolds him. And it's like in this moment, he goes to the temple, the very uh, like picture of, who, of what his body is. The temple is the outward picture of Jesus' body. And she finds him there having sung this song and she scolds him because I think in a moment she forgets the words to it. She forgets what he came to do. She knows him as her boy and she forgets that he's the rescue of the world. And then when he turns 30, when Jesus turns 30 and he starts his ministry and he starts doing the thing that God told her he was uh, made to do, she and his brothers come to him and they confront him and uh, they think he's insane and they want to have him committed to some sort of mental facility. It's the song of her soul, the song of her love, the song of her life. And yet, at different points in her life, she will forget the words or she'll forget what they mean. She will forget the promise of the king who grew in her womb, the promise of the God who had not forgotten his people. And I think it's worth noting that just because maybe the words were forgotten from time to time, the song never stopped being true. The promise never stopped being true. The words Mary sang were true even if at times she forgot them. They were true uh, when she felt alone in a barn in deep pain. They were true in the panic of losing a child. They were true in the fear of a mental health crisis. And the words of her song were the most true as she watched her boy hanging on a tree, hung by her people for treason at the hand of her people. The song never stopped being true. And I don't know what you need most at Christmas. Maybe this is just me. But I think I just needed someone to say, the song, it's still true. 
is still true. Like Mary, God has looked on us and he has regarded us. God has looked on us and he has regarded us. No matter what your year has looked like or your month or your week or whatever, he has looked on you and he has regarded you. Uh, my friend Will, he ends his, he writes this hilarious Christmas card every year. And at the very end, the last line, no matter what his year has been like, the last line says, Will is the richest man in the world. And every year when I read that line, I'm reminded that the song is still true. That the song is still true. If you're sitting in this room, you have been regarded by the Father, not forgotten. 2,000 years later, there is still, uh, as Mary sings, mercy flowing wave after wave, generation to generation. The song, it's still true. God is still in the business of exalting the humble, no matter what the cry of the crowd may say. The, the song still stands. The way of Jesus is a way of hospitality and humility, of making and allowing room for others. That song is still true. Beginning with Abraham and going until this very moment, God has always and forever been making a way for his people. That, pro that promise is still true. It is true in our belief and it is true in our unbelief. It is true in our health crises and our faith crises and our hope crises. The song of Mary is still true and the promise of God lives on. It lives on no matter what the crowd sees. So here's how I want to end our time together this morning. The band is going to come on up here. I told you they were short. We're going to do what we do every week. And we'll take a minute and we're going to breathe. Uh, we call it Selah. It's just a quiet moment or a holy pause. And uh, so to lead up to that time, um, what I want to do is I just want to read through the Song of Mary again. Um, I want to read it through uh, one more time. And so if you want to, maybe this time, I'm not going to put it on the screen or anything. So if you want to maybe just close your eyes and um, take it in. Um, you may think this is weird and awkward and you don't have to do it. But sometimes when I'm trying to um, actually receive something, I want to connect my body to what my brain is trying to do. And so, like, I'll just sometimes sit with my hands open like, okay, I really want to hear this. So if that helps you do that. Um, I'm going to read it from a different version than what Whit read earlier. Um, so listen along and maybe listen through the lenses of one of these observations or wait for your own observations. I'm not the only one that, that knows them. So I'll read through it one more time and then we'll just pray it, uh, briefly and then we'll just be quiet for a minute. And trust that the Holy Spirit has, I think he has something for us today. So verse 46, and Mary said, I am bursting with God news. I'm dancing the song of my Savior. God took one look at me. And look what happened. I'm the most fortunate woman on the earth. I'm the most fortunate woman on the earth. What God has done for me will never be forgotten. The God whose name is holy set apart from all others. His mercy flows in wave after wave on those who are in awe before him. He bared his arm and he showed his strength. He scattered the bluffing braggarts. He knocked tyrants off their high horses, pulled victims out of the mud. The starving poor sat down to a banquet. And the callous rich were left out in the cold. He embraced his chosen child, Israel. He remembered and piled on the mercies. He piled them high. It is exactly what he promised. 
beginning with Abraham and right up to now. He embraced his chosen people. He remembered them and piled on the mercies, piled them high. It is exactly what he promised, beginning with Abraham right up to now. So God, we ask you in these minutes, will you send your spirit here? I pray that you give us eyes, uh, eyes to see beyond what feels impossible or absurd so that we can find you. I feel like that's always where you lie. You lie just beyond what seems impossible. And so will you give us those kinds of eyes and those kinds of hearts? Will you remind us that, um, that your story is still true in the middle of our health crises and faith crises and hope crises? May you remind us that we're made for one another, that you have paved a way for us through the faithfulness of so many people. Will you remind us that the story that we're living in this exact minute is part of something so much wider than we have eyes to be able to see. And so we just say, come Holy Spirit, and show us what you have for us.